everybody. Welcome back to Paidea Today. I am Dr. Bill Friesen, and I am joined, as always, by my colleague and friend, Dr. Scott Masson, and we are returning today to the Romantics, and we have another fascinating individual who we spoke a little bit about in the previous episode, but now we're going to come to him rather directly, and I'm speaking, of course, about Samuel Taylor Coleridge for our YouTube people. Uh, Dr. Masson is holding up a portrait of the man himself. It always helps to have a face before you when you're reading these ideas and this poetry. And Coleridge wrote quite a number of famous poems, but one of the most famous is entitled The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It uh, is continuously anthologized and reproduced in various settings and taught in university and high school classrooms across the Western world. So I'm just going to read the first few stanzas of this curious, strange, and some would argue uh, morbid poem, and we'll take it from there. And you'll have to excuse me if I squint a little bit here because this, uh, again, this poem's printing was uh, meant for younger eyes than mine. It is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three. By thy long gray beard and glittering eyes, now wherefore stoppest thou me? The bridegroom's doors are open wide, and I am next of kin. The guests are met, the feast is set, mayst hear the merry din. He holds him with his skinny hand. There was a ship, quoth he. Hold off, unhand me, greybeard loon. As soon's his hand dropped he. He holds him with his glittering eye. The wedding guests stood still and listens like a three-year's child. The mariner hath his will. And so the story begins, the narrative aspect of the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Dr. Masson, this is a poem of a rather peculiar and unique character and it comes out of conversations that Coleridge had with quite a number of people but most significantly uh, his good friend William Wordsworth. Can you talk a little bit about the theoretical underpinnings which inspired this poem? I can get into the theoretical uh, and we we should as well. Um, more approximately the, the actual conversations that led to it. According to Wordsworth himself, it was from uh, a conversation that Wordsworth and Coleridge and Dorothy had had while on a walking tour in Somerset. Um, that's according to Wordsworth and a book that Wordsworth was reading, which was uh, a voyage around the world by way of the Great South Sea by Captain George Shelvuk. So that, that will explain some of the geography there. There's also the influence of a, of a German poem. And um, it's it, it was entitled, what was it called? Uh, the, the Death of Abel. And they had proposed between the two of them to write some sort of a sequel to that, would, which would be The Wanderings of, of Cain. And they they proposed to do this. And they went and said, Let, we'll do it in three cantos. We'll each write one. And the one, the, the one of us that finishes first will write the third canto. And Coleridge then sped on merrily, finished his canto very rapidly. Wordsworth wrote nothing. <laughs> Came back and said, this is not my style. This is not my the sort of subject matter that interests me. Uh, you do that. But he proposed to Wordsworth that, or to Coleridge rather, that instead of writing about that, let's Let's talk about something else. Talk about the murder of a bird rather than the murder of a man. Let's deal with the murder of a bird. Okay, so we get we get that, and that, that's really the origin of this strange poem. Now, this poem was part of a collection of poems that we mentioned last time. That was really uh, the 
announced the birth of the Romantic movement, uh, the Lyrical Ballads. And this was the first poem in the first edition uh, in 1798. Um, and because it's not only um, uh, at the beginning, but lengthy, it had a real effect on the readership. And, and Wordsworth seemed not to appreciate that very much. So when the 1800 edition come, came out, it was pushed back in the collection. That might be the beginning of what uh, began as a very important literary friendship and sustained it for a while and eventually led to a, to a fallout. Um, but he pushed it back into the volume and with his preface, he announced that he was going to write about the uh, poetry on the poetry of nature written in the language of real men um, and the language of real life, etc. So commonplace diction, common men's uh, language, the, the uh, substance of, of real life. Well, that has nothing to do with Coleridge's poem. So no. obviously, if he's going to announce that in his preface, he can't have that as the first poem, so he pushes it back. Coleridge probably had his nose out of joint about that, I suspect. <laughs> no, right? Yeah. Um, be that as it may, Coleridge appreciated the poem. It had a mixed reception. Wordsworth did not like it. Um, others loved it. And Coleridge was very interested, and he he revised it over and over and over. Uh, he So it came out in the 800... 1800 version of the lyrical ballads, but Coleridge published it again in, in significantly revised version in a uh, collection of his own poems called Sibylline Leaves in 1817. And then it came with the gloss, which is the marginal comments uh, there. And that in itself is a discussion point and very interesting. And he revised it again in a later edition. So it's a poem that he that stuck with him and it was important to Coleridge as a writer as well. And so when we come to talk about the Biographia Literaria, Coleridge's major critical work, uh, this poem is an important one uh, on that front. But that's the sort of the origin of it. Uh, in his Biographia, he writes this, this is chapter 14 of it, he says this, that, they, that he and Wordsworth, when they were neighbors, were very interested in the two cardinal points of poetry, namely, uh, the power of exciting the sympathy of the reader by a faithful adherence to the truth of nature and the power of giving the interest of novelty by the modifying colors of imagination. So those two things, uh, exciting sympathy and uh, in conjunction with the truth of nature and then modifying that. Now, those two points are really reflecting on what Coleridge has just given us, namely his definition of the imagination, primary and secondary. I won't say anything about that right now. Maybe we can dig into that. But he says that from that, um, there's for the one, and he said it didn't. He's not sure which one of it occurred, which one of them it occurred to. The incidents and agents were to be at part at least supernatural, and the excellence aimed at was uh, interesting. The affections in dramatic truth, and the second class would be the subjects of ordinary life, characters from every village and every town. Wordsworth or Wordsworth wrote on the latter, and the Romantic movement is in general associated with the latter, the common life. And Wordsworth, with his preface, identifies it and excludes what Coleridge ends up talking about in his poems. But but Coleridge himself agrees that he will write on that, and he writes three poems: one, one, the Ancient Mariner; two, the Dark Lady; and three, Christabel. All of which contain what you described as something of the horror and the Gothic uh, element to it. 
and that is a part of the Romantic movement without a doubt. Uh, in, in other writers, you can see this same preoccupation with, uh, quite frankly, scary things um, yeah. with, with, with a, uh, a matter which, is, which would be contained in the idea of the death of Abel or the wanderings of Cain. It would be there. And it was very popular, uh, Coleridge's poem with Sir Walter Scott and, and Lord Byron, uh, etc. And eventually it had a very vast audience. I think it's the subject of heavy metal uh, music to this day, but never mind. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point to, that you make here. And in, in my more limited experience dealing with and teaching the Romantics and reading the Romantics, uh, when I get into conversations with other individuals about them, I find that they tend to um, emphasize one of these aspects or the other, but there's oftentimes not a balanced understanding. So there are those who think of the Gothic as this connects to the Romantics. And so you have, of course, uh, following from writers like Horace Walpole and, of course, Mary Shelley. Um, and, uh, of course, the thinking and Radcliffe. Radcliffe. Yeah, she connects the sublime to Gothic horror. Um, very significantly, very interesting connection, by the way. And uh, so I, I find oftentimes that the people with whom I'm having conversations know that side of it extremely well and are not very familiar with this other side of making the familiar strange, to coin a phrase, uh, which Wordsworth, of course, is endeavoring to do. Because some people say these things almost seem to be at odds when I think in the initial conception, if I'm following the conversation correctly, they saw these two aspects of poetry as being uh, not in conflict, but complementary in certain senses. And if you've read your Coleridge around a little bit, you'll find that he writes quite a number of these poems here. You mentioned Christabel, that's a, a very significant one that strikes this kind of dark, dark tone. If you read uh, uh, Kubla Khan, the, the fragment, yep. again, we're dealing with the bizarre and fantastical, the woman wailing for her demon lover and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so this is very Coleridgean, if I can use that in an adjectival sense. Uh, also, I run into students who have read a bit of the Romantics literary theory, particularly around the notion of spontaneity and creation. Mm -hmm. And they uh, elicit a degree of uneasiness with the fact that the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner underwent such extensive revision. But this is actually something which is accounted for by the Romantics. They'll talk about the original conception of a poem, a moment of genius, if you will as being a spontaneous and you can't force it, you can't, uh, you can't grind your way to it as you would with a craft or something like this that had there's something uh, organic about it. But they say almost in the same breath or the next breath that nevertheless, the poem can never be polished and improved. The, the original concept can be improved. And this of course is what we're seeing here with Coleridge and the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Yes, and, and I think that's, Correct, and I think the balance is actually necessary there. Having said that, that is a balance that Coleridge seems to see, and Wordsworth did not. Correct, and, and because Wordsworth writes nothing in this vein, and seems to discount it. Uh, and what I think upsets Coleridge, and leads him to write his Biographia Literaria, is Wordsworth's use of the word imagination and his claim uh, to that it is exemplified by his practice of poetry and he excludes what Coleridge ends up writing about and yeah. and so Coleridge pushes back on this and and he in in the second half of the biographia takes issue with Wordsworth's literary theory and he destroys him in my mind he absolutely 
he embarrasses him um, because, because the claims that Wordsworth makes for his poetic theory are all inclusive. He says that all good poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling. All good poetry and all each one of those, uh, the parts of that sentence is taken apart by, by Coleridge. It's not all good poetry, first of all. It might be some, but it's not all. And the fact that it's spontaneous, again, you addressed that just now in the fact that the, that even Coleridge revised and revised and revised, and we know that many poets historically have always done that, and, and it, like Virgil, a, a famous mm -hmm. uh, reviser of his poetry, and it's great poetry, so it doesn't have to be a spontaneous overflow, and of powerful feeling and so forth. I mean, we can get into that as well. It, he seems to He seems to be talking about feeling as opposed to um, something other than feeling. So there's a too strong an emphasis on on feeling, I would say, rather than the truth of nature, as Coleridge himself puts it here at the outset. Well, I'm sure that you know that Coleridge, at least, well, this is my impression, and correct me if, if you disagree here. My impression was always that Coleridge was more of the philosopher of these. Oh, things. yes. There's no um, doubt about that. And that he he had a, a gift for thinking in this way, if not always correctly, nevertheless, it was tended to be a, a quite a robust uh, a way of engaging these uh, ideas from a more philosophical perspective. So in some senses, writing after Wordsworth has, if you like, stuck out his neck uh, in the preface and other places here as well, um, it, you know, Coleridge is well placed to deal with that. But I want to come back and talk a little bit also about this notion of the imagination, because Coleridge is famous for quite a number of things. But one of the ideas that he's very famous for is this idea that you've already mentioned, um, this distinction between the primary and secondary imagination. Can you unpack that a little bit for our listeners? Yes, uh, as briefly as I can. It's a, it's not a simple uh, topic because it's really a subject of a great deal of discussion throughout the 18th century. And it is the word, the imagination, which is most strongly associated with the Romantics having said that. And on that note, I would say that Coleridge tends to be accredited with the, the quintessential romantic definition of the imagination. That's what one reads in literary uh, guides and anthologies. And to this day, this is the, rom the romantic view of the imagination is best summarized by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and then they, they quote it and so forth. But I am not convinced by that, that that actually is true. I'm not sure that Coleridge's definition of the imagination, as he presents it, uh, is adhered to by his fellow romantics. I think there's something more traditional in Coleridge's definition there, insofar as, and I'll go back to the passage I quoted from 14 before getting to the definition, he says, the two cardinal points of poetry, one, the power of exciting the sympathy of the reader by a faithful adherence to the truth of nature. Begs the question of what you mean by nature, but the truth of nature. And secondly, the power of giving the interest of novelty by the mod modifying colors of imagination. Okay, so those two things. But one is fidelity to a truthful account of nature. So it is mimesis in that sense, I, I, I take it as. So it's the representation of reality. Well, that's a long tradition, and Coleridge puts himself in that tradition by saying that. And then the second bit is simply the modifying and the novelty. But the novelty is not an absolute novelty. It's not beginning ex nihilo, as it were. Whereas it, we, when we associate the Romantics with 
this idea of the imagination, we, we do attribute to them this absolute novelty, dispensing with the past, getting rid of any associations of authority, et cetera, very anti-authoritarian. I don't think Coleridge's definition can carry that freight. Um, but that's my own personal issue with the critical establishment on this point. His definition is twofold, the primary. So I'll just read it. The imagination I consider either as primary or secondary. The primary imagination I hold to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception and as a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. The secondary I consider as an echo of the former, coexisting with the conscious will, yet still as, an ide as identical with the primary in the kind of its agency and differing only in the degree and in the mode of its operation. It dissolves, diffuses, dissipates in order to recreate or where this process is rendered impossible, yet still at all events, it, it struggled to idealize and to unify. It is essentially vital even as all objects, as objects are essentially fixed and dead." End quote. So in the primary imagination, he not only talks about mimesis, the representation of reality, he also invokes a very Christian reference, the repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am, the I am being God's revelation of who he is in response to Moses querying in Exodus 3. He's at, he asked God, who are you? Who shall I say sent me? Tell him I am sent me. So he who identifies himself, and it's the repetition of that. Now I take this to be by 1817, Coleridge having moved away from his early, I think questionable orthodoxy towards a more Christian orthodoxy in his understanding and, and is very much strongly pegging his his view of creation to that uh, the divine act of creation and there can be no creation if that is not taking place the second only comes if the first has been fulfilled so to my mind this is a bulwark against all ideas of creatio ex nihilo the poet expressing new ideas entirely novel etc well that's in the secondary but note that the secondary is only an echo of the former it doesn't yeah, exist without it yeah, right so on the other so these are this this to my mind makes Coleridge as a poetic theorist a an anti-romantic almost yeah the notion that he would be espousing uh, uh I, I like his use of the word faithful a faithful reproduction of external reality essentially what he's saying as far as I'm reading Coleridge is that he's insisting that we have a obligation to behave in good faith with the true as we discern it in the noumenal world uh and in the extraneous world and what have you that's something that uh, you know when i articulate it that way that's something that again a number of my students who are studying the romantics they find that a little bit shocking they thought you know it's all as you say uh creation ex nihilo uh for the romantics and the imaginative process I'd also like to signal here that, again, when it comes to discussions around the imagination, the Romantics are changing relatively radically understandings of the imagination or imaginativa, uh, which is seen as one of the five inner senses, as outlined by Albertus Magnus. Um, and, but, he, but Coleridge comes around and he actually echoes his language a little bit here in the biographia, because he's talking about the imagination 
as that thing secondarily, which can basically dissipate, rearrange, and uh, re-merge uh, various things that are held in mind. Well, that's a very medieval and Renaissance conception of the imagination. I the think so. Romantics do not mean that when they're talking about the imagination. They give it uh, a, a almost infinitely grander uh, role, which is bordering on the edge of divine operations and things. Yeah, like no, it, it's. I, I said last time it's panentheism, and I think that is where Wordsworth is coming from. Um, it, he does not, there's no repetition, there's no distinction, there's no foundation, and here we're working with that. I think Coleridge stands in the Christian tradition, and the classical tradition for that matter, in his articulation of it. It's slightly different, it does make emphasis on, on novelty, to be sure, which you would not find in other authors, but note that the novelty is a very attenuated novelty. Yeah. Right, it's a second. It's the secondary imagination. Yes, it's a subsidiary novelty. Subsidiary yeah. is dependent upon the operations of the first, which is cl clearly moored to the extraneous noumenal reality the poet encounters. Right, um, and, and 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 then in the twentieth century, writers like Tolkien speak of sub-creation. I think they mean effectively the same thing. Yeah. Um, and as you and I have discussed previously, Tolkien is speaking back to a long-held worldview of essentially primary and secondary um, iterations in terms of creation, dis uh, discovery, invenira, and stuff like this. Also, when I was in my third year of university, this is when I first encountered the Romantics, one of the things that struck me about Wordsworth was that um, it seemed to me that uh, the young not Wordsworth, Coleridge. When I was reading Coleridge, it struck me that the young Coleridge was in many ways a radically different poet and thinker than the more mature Coleridge that we're talking about here with the biographia. I agree. You talk about how he essentially demolishes the Wordsworth's thinking on poetry, the imagination, the creative capacity and things like that. Can you unpack that comment a little bit more? Because I think our listeners might find that interesting. Okay, so he, he really does it. He takes him apart bit by bit. In response to Coleridge's response, by the way, Wordsworth was outraged and realized that he'd been bested. And he said, you know, I never cared a jot about theory, the direct quote. And it was Coleridge who put me up to writing the, the preface. He should have written the, you know, he should have written the preface. Well, perhaps he ought to have. But Coleridge, either out of humility or out of uh, a sense of uh, inferiority, recognized the poetic gifts of Wordsworth, assumed that Wordsworth had all the same uh, capacities that he had, and he didn't. Wordsworth was not a great theoretician of his poetry. Having said that, the preface to Lyrical Ballads is a sort of a, a masterpiece of sorts, but I think it's not immune to criticism, and it is Coleridge that destroys his poetic theory. Having said that, he does say that Wordsworth is the greatest poem poet of their age and deserves to be ranked alongside Milton and Shakespeare. So if your harshest critic is going to elevate you to that rank, then you actually in some ways owe him a great deal of praise because, because he's, it's not that he is uh, putting his thumb on the scales here. He, he is trying to be as judicious as he can in his judgment. Okay, but you asked about the devastating criticism. Okay, well, he says uh, that he understood to contend for the extension of this style, that is his style uh, to poetry of all kinds and to reject as vicious and indefensible all phrases and forms of style that were not included in what he 
unfortunately, I think, adopting an equivocal expression called the language of real life. Well, what the heck does that mean? And then he talks about it in conjunction with nature. Well, what does he mean by nature? Well, later on in the biographia, I think in chapter 17, he notes that that our savages or our, our missionaries, when they're encountering savages, they're his word, not mine, will talk about the forms of nature to which they are exposed, which are far grander than our rather tame English countryside, and yet they produce no great poetry of this sort. How is it that this would be so then? Coleridge attributes it to uh, the influence of the universities and the education of the uh, Western mind, if you will, not his phrase, but mine there, uh, and how that, that learning which was in the schools was disseminated to the populace at large come the Reformation in their native tongue. And so that there are ideas and concepts that exist in the English, not only in their vocabulary, but in their whole uh, mindset that are not there and not part of uncivilized man. So if you want to say that romanticism is nature poetry, take what Coleridge says there and try and square that with that. It does not square with it at all. It does not comport with it. It doesn't fit with it. There's no way of making those things fit at all. So I have maintained in writing, in my doctoral thesis at that, uh, now in print, uh, that he uh, Coleridge is most decidedly anti-romantic. If if romantic means what they say it means, then Coleridge is not it. Uh, and nonetheless, I think he's a great writer, and he is one of the writers of the period. Uh, and his definition of the imagination is consistent and makes and holds up, but it doesn't hold for the other writers, but he de he destroys them. So on in relation to the language of real life, well, what language is this? He says, is any, have you ever heard of, of, a, of, a, of a, a rustic who speaks the way Wordsworth's rustics speak? No, never, and you never will. There is a sense here where we're dealing with a, a reimagining one suspects of uh, the the pastoral sensibility, as is first articulated by, uh, articulated by people like uh, Theocritus and people like this, yep. where you're, you're being given a vision of nature, but it's through the lens of an urbane writer who is imposing all sorts of urbane sensibilities upon this picture of the idyll. Um, is this not simply another attempt to do the same sort of a thing? It, it um, is in some ways. I, I, and I think you can see it in Theocritus, you can see it in scripture even. In the yeah. Song of Solomon, the, the, the love poetry is a shepherd for a shepherdess. That, yes. Right? And the, but these are written by aristocrats for aristocrats. And yet the ideal is that of a country rural uh, idyll. Yeah. And moreover, you know, the, the initial pastoral writers, whomever that might have been, um, there was a. It was common knowledge that the people, that the dialogue, that the subject matter, that the beauty that is being explored through this urbane lens as they look out upon the countryside, they know that that's not real countryside. They, they know that that's not real nature. Um, it, it, it's understood. It's a convention. You don't have to unpack that to the audience. The audience of the, the romantic poets, on the other hand, oftentimes do seem to be under the impression that this is really what rustic life is like life close to the earth and nature and, and things of this sort and this is a, a tendency which i think has persisted again to this very day um 
also, as you were speaking there, you put me in mind of uh, another sort of observation I've made about much of the poetry and the thinking of the Romantic period in particular, though it, it's on both sides here, is that the Romantic period is in some ways typified by selective memory. A lot of people don't like talking about the, uh, the theorizing, uh, the later theorizing of Coleridge because it upsets a lot of the sort of things that they admire about the Romantics, which are said somewhat earlier on. And I'm thinking here of other writers who also threw into question large influential assertions by the Romantics and how we, we, we tend not to talk about those people. I know that uh, around other matters, uh, for instance, uh, regarding philosophy, Kierkegaard does this. Kierkegaard blows up Hegel and his phenomenology of spirit and stuff like this. And everybody just ignores that tract that Kierkegaard wrote. It was decisive. It was, it was conclusive. Uh, and yet we still talk breathlessly about uh, Hegel's theories as these come out of uh, his discussions of phenomenology. And uh, Kierkegaard is quietly airbrushed out of the conversation. Yep. And I noticed that here with the biographia. Yeah, and it, but, it's, but it's worse because Coleridge is being called the quintessential romantic theorist. And it seems to me that this is this wholly mistaken. Uh, if 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 you want to categorize what Wordsworth holds, then you have to hold Wordsworth's view up, which Wordsworth does. Mm -hmm. If you want to hold Coleridge up, then you have to see him as a critic of that same theory of poetry. On the other hand, the theory of poetry that Wordsworth presents is that not the contemporary view of what theory of what literature is which is the expression the spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling is that not your average undergraduates understanding what poetry is the effusion of emotion and the idea of being original you have to be original all of those things are connected with poetry with with creativity to this very day but words or coleridge destroys that view and it's not <laughs> and yet his, his criticism is not only uh ignored it's totally misrepresented I, I wonder whether the critics have actually read Coleridge now I've said this in print and I and <laughs> and I, I'm still waiting for the response maybe even nobody just nobody reads the work but it was in my doctor's offense Coleridge tends to be taken as expressing the Germanic school of literature he's just a Kantian he, he's a, a devotee of Schelling and so forth uh, I think if you ignore his writing the specific claims he makes, then you can hold that view, but you can't. But if you take his words seriously and read outside that tradition, as he did, then I don't know how you can defend that position anymore. Yeah, it's. I was gonna. It, it occurred to me to ask you just before you actually said it. Uh, I was gonna say, why is it that this is? It, how is it that this could have been airbrushed out of the artistic and intellectual discussion here? Uh, but uh, you actually touched on one of the things I suspect that people simply either A, haven't read it, um, or B, don't understand it, or C, choose willfully not to understand what Coleridge is saying because it set, uh, upsets too many other, uh, their other presuppositions about the romantics and how artistic creativity actually functions. I think it's the third of the... Yeah, it might be. That's, I, 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 that's the most depressing. The, scholar, the scholarly right. community is far too well-read. I don't think they lack that sort of integrity. They haven't read the material. They've read it. They've just um, overlooked or uh, disregarded the things that really don't comport with their view on it, and, and they've moved on. But Coleridge, by the end of his literary life, and certainly by this point, when he's publishing the uh, biographia, uh, claims to be Christian and, and 
later on his the summary of his faith is there in the 39 articles of the anglican church well that makes him uh, nigh on an evangelical he's referencing the 39 articles i don't think he is an evangelical but but the 39 articles are pretty that's pretty robust anglicanism there it is yeah um and uh to add a little bit of depth to this as well, um, Coleridge's life was not always, in many respects, easy. We talked about uh, how oh, gosh, his upbringing no. without uh, without the proper parental figures overseeing his development was perhaps a problematizing influence. But there are other things that dogged uh, Coleridge's uh, career. Do you want to say just a brief little bit about that? Well, it's not really a biographical podcast here, but it it does. Well, he had, he had a great deal of, I mean. He had many difficulties in life. He, he had health concerns and uh, the standard way of dealing with pain in that day was through um, laudanum, a variation on opium, and Coleridge became addicted to that and he never was able to kick the addiction. And he was humiliated by that fact. Uh, he felt uh, uh, like he had, uh, he was a moral failure because of the addiction and of course it had its effect on him as well, um, but it uh, it led him to be dependent on other people. And uh, there are allegations of plagiarism in relation to his writing, which I think there's warrant for making. Um, whether he does that consciously or unconsciously, he had a copious memory, and and he could quote at great length. Uh, other writers in multiple languages as well. The biographia is write, writing in, and it, it, it cites passages in Latin and Greek and so forth in the original language as well, but he reads in German and he has this encyclopedic memory and things connect with other things. And sometimes he's quoting himself from other, and he's not even realizing where these things come from at times, I think. He's not really concerned with the standards of modern scholarship. Um, so, and, and he dismisses that plagiarism is a really a large concern at any rate. What is really matters is what's true and expressing that truth, not saying, giving a, you know, a sourcing for every statement that's made. But I think the, the allegation of plagiarism certainly lands on him. And, and I think it's hard to defend him on that. On the other hand, I think he is a brilliant thinker. He's one of the great uh, talkers of his age, he would fill theaters and, and just talk on at great length and he would draw huge crowds because he was such a fascinating individual. I mean, he's the subject of much uh, ridicule as well uh, by, by others, but, but still. So yes, the combination of his uh, addiction to laudanum, his financial uh, challenges, which forced him to rely on others throughout his life, um, and uh, the allegations of plagiarism to a lesser extent, these things uh, bedeviled him throughout his life and, and led him to feel himself in some senses a failure. He, he did, I think, recognize that he had literary gifts, but by and large, he moved away from being the great poet, which I think he was, his early writing uh, suggests that, uh, and satisfied himself with being the great uh, critic of the 19th century. If Johnson was in the 18th, I think Coleridge could be considered so in the 19th. His uh, lectures on Shakespeare, his comments on, uh, on, on Wordsworth, um, and even his commentary on, on other poetry in the Biographia Literary, I think qualifies him as a great critic.
critic in his own right, and he was certainly regarded as such, but he, he moved away from being a poet to being a critic. And um, this is, yeah, this is not an unusual arc that we see with some other writers out there as well. They produce much of their best work when they are in their younger years, and then they move more over to the theory as time goes on. Or the arc will go in exactly the opposite direction. They'll start very artistic, or sorry, very theoretically uh, oriented, and then shift into ever more creative endeavors as life goes on. But usually you don't find a balance in between. One of the things that struck me as you were talking here also, Scott, was this notion of memory. We, we've discussed this before with some of the great writers that we've encountered and how they seem to have simply an enormous amount of information and art stored in their mind upon which they can draw in the heat of the moment, whether that be in the process of composing an artistic work or discussing uh, various matters of this kind here. But the danger, as you also noted, is that the wires can get crossed, the sources can get uh, mixed up. And one of the upshots is that um, I think, yeah, uh, Coleridge is in danger of plagiarizing. When I first read him, I was very fortunate because uh, a number of uh, professors had guided me to some strong foundations when it came to Western thinking, whether that's on art or philosophy or what have you. And I remember when I was reading particularly the Biographia. And uh, as I was reading particularly the Biographia Literary, it struck me with one idea after another that uh, these ideas were not original to Coleridge. He was not acknowledging their source. Uh, these could be ideas, uh, for instance, around, as I've already said, the imagination or the notion of genius and the, and the diamonic. Um, and I think to some extent, this is just uh, the vast memory of Coleridge getting things a little bit jumbled, particularly as this might be exacerbated by his laudanum Fiction and things like this. It's not going to help with that. Um, but uh, as you've also noted here, um, his life was not a, a happy one. And uh, some of the darkness that we detect, some of the gothic that we detect in his work and in the rhyme of the ancient mariner in particular, had again an extraneous basis uh, in a lot of personal lived experience potentially in terms of uh, the spirit in which he writes. And in that sense, I think of Coleridge as being a little bit on the opposite side of Johnson. Johnson oftentimes is writing in calm, um, measured, relatively optimistic tones while he himself is living a life of tremendous, tremendous hardship here. On the other hand, I do think some of that might be reflected in the rather Gothic nature of, uh, of the work that we're looking at here. Another thing that you and I were discussing as it were off camera or off mic was this notion that the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner actually is seeded with, particularly in its later iterations. I have the 1815 in front of me here right now with the, the gloss, and I want you to say something about that too, is that there seems to be an ever more pervasive Christianity informing a lot of its plot, a lot, uh, a lot of its expression, a lot of its imagery and things of this sort. He references ideas and notions uh, which are clearly pointing back to scripture and things of this sort. Can you say a little bit more about that in the rhyme of the ancient mariner itself? Well, it's part of the dealing with Coleridge's poem here is the various editions of it. And this is also the case, I would say, with Wordsworth's own great poem, The Prelude. It, it, it comes forth in a two-part version. And the 1805 edition, which is probably his best, and then in a definitive 1850 version, which is 
seemingly more orthodox, more inclusions of the word God in it and so forth, while retaining much of the things that would contradict that in the poem, and it just doesn't seem to really work. In Coleridge's case, I think that you could argue that the later editions of the poem actually improve it and make it a more interesting poem. I certainly think so, and uh, the those that bring out anthologies also seem to produce the 1817 version from the Sibylline Leaves, or, or even later versions, and rather than the original one that would have come out in 1798. So they're not too preoccupied by original genius and not going to take the first fruits here and not think that an artist can improve his poem. He, they clearly think that he has, and I, I would tend to agree with them on that. In that version, which we have, uh, there is the gloss. So these are com comments in the margins on this, and the comments are, the purpose of the comments is unclear because it's not unequivocal. Uh, the purpose that they have. So, for example, the, the very beginning, we read the outset of the poem. Uh, it says, an ancient mariner meeting three gallants hidden, bidden to a wedding feast, and he detaineth one. Well, what's the, <laughs> what's the point of that comment? I mean, it's stating the blindingly obvious. And Coleridge is probably poking fun at, presumably, commentators who do exactly that state the blindingly obvious he's doing that himself okay he could have done that throughout the entire gloss but he does not so the gloss becomes a bit of a distraction and but also interesting in relation to how do uh, we receive the uh, the poetry of others or let's say the bible because this is the beginning of the the higher critical tradition of reading scripture how do we take the critics in relation to uh, scripture itself, uh, or the poem in relation to the commentator on it. I do think the very fact that he inserts his own gloss begs that question and raises the uh, subject of hermeneutics, which becomes then very much of a preoccupation in the 19th and 20th centuries, and uh, we talked a little bit about that last time. Uh, Coleridge himself is very interested in how people read things as well as how they write them, um, and in that sense, a very much of a modern writer. Uh, the second gloss items of the wedding guest is spellbound by the eye of the old seafaring man and constrained to hear his tale again very much a uh, matter of fact about it we didn't really need that but then later on let's say a few lines uh, the land of ice and fear of fearful sounds where no living thing was to be seen and then later on uh, a spirit had followed, and uh, this is in the uh, part two, a spirit had followed them, one of the invisible inhabitants of this planet, neither uh, departed souls nor angels, concerning whom the learned Jew, Josephus, and the Platonic Constantinopolitan Michael Psellus may be consulted. They are very numerous, and there is no climate or element without one or more. Okay, there's no reference to this in the text at all. It's totally new information, an interpolation. Does this help us read the poem? Does it detract us from reading the poem properly? It seems to add, in, quite frankly, helpful information based on what he's about to say later on. Okay, so all of this changes the nature of the poem, but now it's moving away from the poem to the commentary on the poem. And talking about originality, all of these things make it very interesting the, the poem further though your comment about the latent 
uh, character that we discussed off camera, I see the seeds of Christianity written throughout the entire poem. So the, the beginning, the opening lines about the, uh, not an ancient mariner, but rather a wedding guest, uh, Jesus' parable of a, of a wedding guest who goes out and the wedding guests who are invited don't want to come in. And so he goes out and compels others to come in to the bridegroom's feast, the bride and the bridegroom, the bridegroom being uh, God and the wedding guest being the church and the constraineth. Okay, so then there's also the idea of divine compulsion, predestination. All of these are very much a part of the poem and there is very much uh, a sense of uh, the lack of will on the mariner's part. He is constrained to do what he is bidden to do. He cannot choose but hear. There's an element of supernatural agency throughout the entire poem. That's when he first writes it. That doesn't change between the early editions and the later editions. It's already there. Likewise, the shooting of the albatross with the crossbow, the albatross, which then gets put around his neck, uh, which almost everyone sees as a, a symbol of sin and it falls off or guilt. It falls off. The guilt's gone away. The sin's gone away. The cross, the, you know, the, the atonement is 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 likened or at least uh, brought to mind there. There are all manner of things in the poem that have origins in Christian story. Yeah, and I think uh, as far as I can understand it here, this is not like the Christian symbolism and the Christian context that you encounter with later poets like W.B. Yeats and what have you, which are entirely sundered from the roots and they're simply being uh, employed in sort of a vestigial manner uh, as a, a an inheritance from a long dead cultural aspect. Uh, but I don't think that's what's happening here with Coleridge. No. We have a few things happening that uh, I, I noted about this here. Uh, first of all, to re refer back to an earlier comment here about the plagiarism and what have you, you did make a good point in, in that uh, you noted that Coleridge doesn't pretend to be an intellectual. And so the machinery and apparatuses of uh, intellectual contemplation and writing and what have you oftentimes don't show up in his work. And that's not really a strike against him. He is first and foremost, in my mind, even after the biographia, a poet. Um, also, when it comes to intellectual habits, though, uh, when we encountered uh, the, the gloss uh, here, um, coming out of, uh, this comes out of a tradition which is very ancient and very Christian in many ways. Um, it was conventional once upon a time that when you uh, had a book, particularly a book regarding theology and particularly, particularly a, uh, a book of scripture, because these um, circulated separately individually back in the day, and you'd have a collection which together would constitute uh, your books of the Bible that you would always leave um, space in the margins for the glossia. Um, and these would be commentaries and uh, hopefully illuminating commentaries, which would um, help you with the reading of the main text itself. And some of these commentaries that you encounter uh, become overwhelmingly influential on how the text is read. So for instance, the authoritative gloss or commentary on the book of Genesis was primarily uh, your go-to guy there was St. Augustine. Um, and that would be the, the, the so-called Glossa Ordinaria is just that. So it's the church fathers commenting on scripture. It's just yes. there, right? Yes. And if you look here at, uh, you know, his choice in terms of the antiquated uh, phrasing, the diction, um, word choice, syntactical choices in the, in the gloss here, um, you're seeing sort of that antiquated approach here. Um, Part of me wonders, and maybe you can speak back into this here, is this either consciously or more likely subconsciously an attempt on Coleridge's part 
to control to a greater extent the reading of the text? Is there a control aspect here? I think he's concerned with reception and uh, misrepresentation. He's concerned with the charge of, of heresy mm -hmm. by this point, um, which has been levied against them and uh, the whole romantic movement, uh, even more strongly against the second generation of romantics because they're called the school of Satan, <laughs> the satanic school. So even more so, but he is concerned with that. He's also concerned with we have to remember that England is, uh, there is an Orthodox in England and the Anglican church is the established church and the establishment it, by 1817, I don't think it's really so much of a concern, but years before that, uh, to deviate from uh, the establishment was to be suspected of sedition. Because remember, there's a war against Napoleon, there's a literal war going on. And certainly the earlier writing of Wordsworth and Coleridge lands them decidedly uh, sympathetic towards the French Revolution and make makes them entirely suspicion as and Coleridge and Wordsworth both move away from that position to present them as as more being more establishment orthodox than they perhaps and certainly early on were not. But I think Coleridge genuinely moves that way in his doctrine as well. I'm not sure uh, the same can be said entirely of Wordsworth. Yeah. Um... And or at least satisfactorily, less satisfactorily. You know, I, I always got the impression that Wordsworth, as the years go by, equivocates a little more, but I'm not sure that there's a degree of sincerity behind them like there is necessarily with Coleridge. You're right that Coleridge, as he moves towards the latter years of his life, there's almost an air of contrition that works its way into a lot of his writings, uh, a sense, a deep sense of sort of sonorous regret over certain decisions he's made in life. Also, I think he feels he squandered his gifts because of his, you know, again, the, the addiction, the situations he'd been pushed into um, and, and had largely had to do things in the same way that Johnson had, had to do things uh, that he had to do rather than things that he necessarily wanted to do um, because of his financial state, because of his uh, state of health, because of his addiction. All of these things pushed him uh, in, into a state of regret as well, and he became a figure of fun uh, yep. of, of many. It's um, with Johnson, I always got the impression that um, one could be amazed at how much he had achieved in spite of the hardships of his life, whereas I don't think Coleridge would think about himself in the same way. I could be completely wrong here. This is largely my own subjective understanding of Coleridge, but Coleridge, there are many, many things I think that he thought he could have done and could have done greatly uh, had circumstance been different, but alas, it was uh, that's not necessarily. You could even say, Bill, and I don't know, this is just a thought, in the Glossa Ordinaria, which are, as I said, the, the ordinary glosses which contain the patristic uh, commentators, that they're, they're part of the Bible, the Latin Bible that is produced in the schools in the 12th century. Uh, and they're used in Christian schools that are they're there to help you read. This is what this is what Augustine says on this, et cetera, et cetera. Remember, this is the age of the higher criticism is 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 certainly there in Germany at this point. And eventually it is going to overwhelm England as well. The higher criticism uh, in, in the mid 19th century. It's not there yet in this period. But I'm wondering if we could see Coleridge's use of the gloss as a critique of these new glosses 
and the absurdity of some they, they state the blindingly obvious on the one hand and on the other hand are delving into arcane matters like that of Michael Tsellis and so forth and and is is that part of the purpose here which takes him away from the original purpose of the poem I would have thought but still yeah I don't know I never read them ironically uh, um I, I like you I concluded oftentimes you know when I look at one of these these entries here um that this is blindingly redundant why why would you include this this is annoying um are you just indulging some kind of uh novelty here to see whether or not you can do something within the the wider uh range of literary history i don't know i also never really got i don't know if i would ever consider coleridge to be a particularly or overwhelmingly satirical or ironic individual um, I think uh, the romantics, for the most part, tend to take themselves, comparatively speaking, dreadfully seriously. Um, whereas, of course, they're, they're coming out of the great age of satire that went before them, where it seems like nobody could utter a sincere word in any direction. Uh, everybody's being ironic and satirical, and it's, it's all banter and uh, mockery and, and so on. So I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's difficult for me to figure out. But you should say, actually, just a brief little bit about higher criticism for our what, just what it is for our listeners who aren't perfectly familiar with it. And I know that's a that's a big ask because there's a lot to say there. But if we can just get a precise from you to okay. guide us. Well, a bit. well, it begins in Germany and it it largely is investigating the uh, I, I think it be, I believe it begins with the uh, text that have been received and questioning the, uh, first of all, the uh, legitimacy and uh, uh, accuracy of some of these texts. And that's to some degree part of the, the biblical tradition, but also questioning, and this is more to the point, and this is what's new, is questioning the scientific or empirical basis for the claims being made in scripture. That will be a part of that. And then there will be an attempt to re uh, interpret what is being said there in light of modern science and what it states. So the higher criticism does this and it starts to move in a far more critical direction towards vis-a-vis -vis the claims, uh, particularly the supernatural claims of scripture. Um, that becomes a, a part of it and, and I would say that it has not gone away from it. So um, and, the, and the movement get, is so strong in Germany that a new university emerges in the in Berlin in the early 19th century, and it does not include a, a faculty of divinity at all. There's no school of theology because it's no longer considered to be a subject of knowledge. Now that's a stark move away from the, its understanding in the origins of the university in which uh, Christian theology would be at the heart of every endeavor and the centerpiece of it, or philosophy as it was uh, effectively presented in the same way, the theological philosophy. Now we're excluding that from all consideration. Well, uh, the higher criticism moves in that same sort of direction. It begins with putting God in the dock with the idea of Christian theology. It has to be proven by other means. Well, so that that's more or less the, the so-called higher criticism of the Bible. And, and it has no effect in England at this stage, I don't think. Uh, I could be wrong on that. Coleridge reads them, uh, the, these uh, higher critics, as well as authors like Immanuel Kant and so forth, and introduces them to an English-speaking audience. Too much ridicule, I might add. But by 1850, uh, German-speaking uh, 
culture has overwhelmed uh, not just England, but particularly America mm -hmm. and uh, under Carlisle and, and, and others, uh, and, and such that um, the higher criticism basically pushes out at all traditional understandings of scholarship and replaces it with research. Yeah, it's um, we see a number of things here which are working to drive forward uh, higher criticism to a complete position of dominance. Uh, we have positivism as it comes out of the 18th century yep. as part of it, the scientific method as it is being refined and promoted and being given ever more authority in the quest of the mind. Uh, this is part of it as well. We have, of course, this will eventually um, weave its way into the courses around Darwin's evolution of the species that's going to become part of that narrative. Uh, and this is also why, if uh, our listeners will recall, when we were talking about Shakespeare's Hamlet all that time ago, uh, we were talking about how, Shakespeare, uh, how Hamlet is studying in Wittenberg, he's studying philosophy slash theology and we're being particularly careful about distinguishing between those two because we didn't have to be careful uh the separation of theology and it's in some senses um it's denigration in the view of the university this is this is very much a 19th century development coming out of higher criticism and a bunch of other things here and philosophy takes the paramount position in that uh field and theology is pushed over to the side uh far away from many positions of uh, intellectual respectability would this have bothered coleridge as you said coleridge is the conduit by which many significant german philosophical ideas uh first make landfall in england uh, and you're uh, and he is mocked for it in many cases uh, various ideas and notions and what have you um and i think a lot of people aren't taking a lot of german ideas seriously in coleridge's time but as you say a lot of german intellectual artistic and scientific culture comes to dominate the thinking of uh, england and western and western europe more broadly speaking let me say one other thing because it occurred to me i i didn't say it i i, I did say that there was a common ground there uh between the two and there is insofar as what part of higher criticism does although really it fits in with more textual or what eventually gets called lower criticism is it tries to determine what the original form of the text was and the best variation on the text that are ex exigent so you've got it a scroll from here a scroll from there what's the original scroll that's that the higher criticism tries to find the ur text that doesn't exist at all and on the basis of some sort of investigation, imagine what the original text would have looked like. So it's it's the world behind the text. And so there's an exploration of the hidden sources of biblical revelation. Rather than take the word, you're looking for the spirit behind the word. And that that also informs hermeneutics thereafter. The hermeneutics of Schleiermacher and the romantic hermeneutics is the claim that we can know as well, if not better than the author himself. This Why? Is, because we have broader knowledge. So we, we, we know the spirit with which the writer writes this text, and yet we know that he was limited by his own uh, finite understanding. We, with historical consciousness, have a much broader understanding. So it effectively uh, uh, desacralizes the biblical text. And the same thing is going on with every other writer, for that matter. We're going to say, you've written this, but what you meant by that is this, because it comes from your spirit after all your words say this but you're you intended that the intellectual arrogance and condescension you're describing here because it does ar arise out of that kind of a spirit here we know better than you did um 
is again, when people ask me about the advance of progressivism, as we previously discussed it in the 19th century, this is one of the ways in which it concretely plays out, especially in intellectual circles. What these people are doing insofar as they're putting together, as you say, the Ur text, they're actually availing themselves of scientific methodology that was largely pioneered by the early humanists who were recuperating all these texts from history. And they would put together something called a stemma. A stemma is going to lead you back and back. You collect all the different versions of the text. You measure certain uh, aspects of the corruption. There are different types of corruption that can work their way into the text. And you work your way back to an authoritative critical edition. Um, and here what's happening in the 19th century this is what Erasmus does, for instance. Right? Yes, exactly. And so there is a legitimate way in which to do this. This is bound up with uh, the sciences of paleography and codicology and, and things of that sort. And as a medievalist, I had to become familiar with these things. Yeah. Um, but here we're, they're taking a radical step. They're moving beyond the earliest texts entirely. Um, and they're the, the spirit which informs the direction that that inquiry and the product of that inquiry, the, their critical edition, is entirely up oftentimes to the personality and predispositions of the quote unquote scientist, the thinker who's actually undertaking this. If they're moving in a spirit of skeptical hostility um, and condescension, well, that's going to shape the urtext that they yeah. formulate. So, because they can't be contradicted, there is no actual text there. <laughs> yeah, and we, we should also end in that strand of discussion on a hopeful note higher criticism eventually gets blown up and exposed so um take heart uh that uh, it's it's not going to way is not forever anyway we've moved very very far away from the rhyme of the ancient runner maybe even coleridge to some extent so uh, i don't know if that's productive or if uh, <laughs> it was a, just a fascinating rabbit hole uh, I was I don't know it, it was fascinating in some sense I'll, we'll leave that up to our listeners to decide whether it was fascinating or productive um I would uh say that Coleridge was a profound thinker uh I did think he's not an academic to be sure and the standards of academia uh which are now used uh to determine things like plagiarism were uh rather differently understood in that age um for reasons that we've already articulated, that novelty was not the be all and end all, certainly in the humanities. Uh, really what was prized above all is fidelity uh, to the truth. And uh, in that, uh, if you could recall who had said it, then obviously you ought to give credit to that. And Coleridge certainly does that, but at times he certainly does not. Um, so anyway, but uh, we're, we've done with that. What we were going to move on to after this bill we talked about uh, the romantics and then we were going to move on and I can't recall where we were going. Do you recall? I don't recall exactly. Where That's we unfortunate. We had, uh, I know we had discussed whether or not we should talk about Shelley and Byron and Blake. And I think Keith. we were going to talk about Shelley's Frankenstein or Austin's Pride and Prejudice. That seems more likely to me. Um, we can talk about uh, either one of those to great profit. Um, so how about we uh, make it about Austin initially, and then we can circle back to Shelley's Frankenstein and uh, reawaken, if you like, that uh, discussion on the Gothic and see okay. what shambles out of the dark mists of thought and knowledge. Indeed. Okay, wonderful. So we'll conclude with that. I am Dr. Scott Masson, once again with Paideia Today with my learned colleague, Dr. Bill Friesen. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Excellent. Take care, everyone. Bye.